1985, uh, a pop band called Tears for Fears, I don't know if you've heard of them or not, released a song called Everybody Wants to Rule the World. It came out at the height of the Cold War, and some of the lyrics uh, show at this, uh, holding hands while the walls come tumbling down. It speaks of the paranoia that existed back in the 80s uh, with scary words about regimes like, even while you sleep, we will find you. Uh, There's a a new Bond movie out this week, of course, and and every one of those films have a baddie in it who who wants to rule the world. Isn't that right? Someone with uh, megalomaniac tendencies. He's the bad guy. But with all that in mind, I'm still not quite sure they were right. Tears for fears. Does everybody want to rule the world? I think it's too much stress. <laughs> I think I'll leave it um, to Vladimir and Joe and Boris and people like that. And the uh, Illuminati and those working on a new world order, if you believe there are people working on a new world order and all that sort of stuff, you know. Ezra and uh, Nehemiah are two books in your Bible. But from ancient times, they have been considered as one book. Uh, in, the ancient, in the Hebrew Bible, they are just one book that goes together. And we're going to consider them together in our, in our series, which begins uh, today. They are history books in our Bible. Uh, they account for a historical record of what happened six centuries before Jesus was born. And, and of course, that perks an interest in some of you. People like, like Billy, I think he, he, that perks an interest in someone like him. History, and, and, and you hear about the Irish Baptist Historical Society up in the wall before church, and you think, I'd like to go to that. And others, of course, are the opposite. Because such is the, the, the diversity of our people, that the very word history is enough to put you to sleep. It's not right. We're different. Please don't. But of course, whether you like reading history or not, God gave us a book containing history. Every word of it breathed out by God for our encouragement and and instruction, our edification, our growth and godliness, all necessary for our encouragement and edification and and growth and godliness. Because we have in these books chronicles of real people, uh, of their real lives, of how they acted in in the circumstances of their lives, how they acted before a watching God. A real story that has lessons for you, for you and for me that, that we need, and, and we need it today. We have chronicles of a nation in God's favor. That's what we first notice. Ezra and Nehemiah come right after, turn the page, come right after Second Chronicles in our Bible. And most Bible commentators reckon that the same author uh, wrote Chronicles as wrote Ezra and Nehemiah. And yes, there are a couple of sort of what we call memoir sections of Ezra in both Ezra and Nehemiah. But still, uh, in those sections, Ezra speaks, as it were. But still, most people believe that it was the chronicler who compiled First and Second Chronicles that, that wrote uh, these books uh, that we're considering together. And so... As we set the scene for our series today, we find ourselves at the very end of Second Chronicles in our Bible. In fact, the very end of Second Chronicles is very like Ezra chapter 1 in the first few verses. We'll see that in time. But think with me. Think with me about the story of the Bible so far as we get to here. God had, had one man, and despite all the privilege and opportunity that one man failed, his name was Adam. So God's next move was to 
was not one man, but, but one nation. Uh, God has one nation which, which is singled out and, and, and chosen and, and subject to all his privilege and, and opportunity. Her name was Israel. Remember how God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt with a powerful hand, with a, with a mighty hand, with those ten plagues, those miracles, the, and that gospel picture at the end when, when the blood was, was sprinkled on the doorposts as the Passover lamb was pointing forward to something better. That the blessing that God gave them as his special people of a land flowing with milk and honey in Canaan, a picture, a picture of heaven where the nations who opposed God were defeated and it was given to God's people. Where in trusting in God's promises, they were, they were assured of his blessing, the blessing of that repeated Old Testament summary. If you were to make a summary of the Old Testament, it would be something like this. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And God chose to, to dwell with his people as well, in a special way. Yes, God is without size. A size, a space cannot contain our God. But, but initially in the tabernacle, in the, in the tent of meeting, during the, the wanderings in the, in the wilderness, in the desert, and then when they settle finally in the, in the land of Canaan, uh, Solomon builds this temple uh, as the dwelling place of God. Here his presence rests within the holy of holies. In the center of the, of the tabernacle, uh, two cherubim of, of olive wood stood with the Ark of the Covenant. And in the, the innermost sanctuary was the, the dwelling place of the divine presence, the Shekinah glory, a place that, that could be entered only by the high priest and only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Such was its holiness. A magnificent temple fit for a magnificent God who was there among his people. Of course, it's not just a temple. There's a whole, there was a whole plethora of lampstands and basins and golden articles and altars that went along with it. This was, this was not just a building to look at or, or, just, or even to assemble on special days. No, it was a whole sacrificial system that God had directed and given his own instructions for. The temple was situated on Mount Moriah, the, the place where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. The temple contained five altars, one at the entrance of the Holy of Holies, two others in the building, a large bronze one at the porch, and a large tiered altar in the courtyard. It was a sacrificial system with such a place, with such a God-designed system. They were, they were a special people, weren't they? For sure. No one else got this of the nations around them. They were privileged above all others. They were given instructions to be different. They were to be a light even to the, the other nations, to a guide, a beacon that would, would show them the way to God. But time passes. Maybe, maybe a little bit like the way you or I had enthusiasm for when, the week that we became a Christian. We had this wonderful enthusiasm uh, that, that, that we had, and, and maybe, it's, maybe it's downhill, maybe it's... Maybe it's dipped a little since then, since all those years have passed. But the people, you see, in the land, they begin to notice the nations around them. And, some, and they see some things that they like. A king, that's one of them. They like the idea of having a king, like the nations around them. And they, they, they ask God for a king many times. And eventually God, he says, well, I was supposed to be your king, but, but he gives them a king. They notice other things too. They see the odd 
woman that might make a good wife from the nations around them. And they say, yeah, yeah well, no harm done, we'll come on in. We'll marry this woman. We'll bring her in to us, with us. In time, they begin to notice some other not-so-bad things about pagan religion too. Sure, why not add a little bit of this? Oh, we're still Jews, of course. Don't worry about it. We still worship God at the top. And as one generation moves into another, the once sharp point of their following of God becomes blunted. And the slow creep is on. Perhaps this is happening to you. Every time you, you swim in the ocean of our secular world, you, you, you sense it, it leaves you further from the shore. It's not hard for this to happen. Maybe it's not as hard to put up with that same-sex kiss on the television as it used to be, or that language on the television, or those business practices that everyone does because the slow creep is on. Or worse, if it's happening to you and you don't even realize, the drift is on. And you find it harder and harder to read your Bible in the morning and to pray. And, and church seems more like, like, like a drain on your time. You've only got so much time. I mean, we're all busy. Midweeks as well. That's a drain on my time. And of course, we know that salvation is secure. So no sweat, right? No sweat. But the rot needs to stop. God's Old Testament people were given this warning after warning that the rot needs to stop. Listen to one of these warnings in Jeremiah chapter 7. But this command I give them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear. But walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went... Backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them. Day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers, says God. And God is, is patient because that's what he's like. He sends prophet after prophet. He didn't just send one. He sends prophet after prophet. His, his mouthpieces back then. He was persistent. He was compassionate in all of that. But eventually, the judgment had to fall. Let's read 2 Chronicles 36 in front of you. Verse 15. Verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all, this, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. 
He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Eventually, as we, as we read there, that the wrath of the Lord rules against his people, his special people. And it comes first from the east. It comes from the east. First of all, it comes from Assyria, who attacked and ravaged the northern part of Israel, the northern kingdom, back in 721 BC. They carry them off to Assyria. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 7, if you wish. Uh, the southern kingdom then, the rest of, of, of Judah as it's called, the, the southern part of Israel, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they, they watch on as this happens and, and they watch on in horror. But they say to themselves that quintessential human response to trouble over there, that'll not happen to us. That'll not happen to us. And then 150 years later, 586 BC, it happens the king of the Chaldeans that we read about, that's Nebuchadnezzar. You'll know him uh, if you know your Bible. Uh, he, 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 as we read, he, he wrecks havoc. He kills the young man with the sword. His army has no compassion on young man or virgin woman or old person. Brutal. Brutal, isn't it? He carries off the king's treasures. And worse, he carries off those precious articles of worship that we mentioned. The treasures of the house of the Lord, the gold, silver, and bronze articles that were part and parcel of the Jewish worship of God, according to his own instructions, all carried off to Babylon, the superpower of the day, the empire of the day, the most powerful nation on earth. And he takes into exile all those survivors who had escaped the sword. He marches them off, probably in chains, to Babylon. And not content with taking everything of worth that's portable with him, Nebuchadnezzar also burns down the temple. No house for God to dwell. No, no place to worship God anymore. And if you notice in that passage, the word all is used five times. It's, 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 it's emphasis, isn't it? This is, com this is comprehensive. This is total. The land is gone. The temple's looted. The people are dead or gone. The walls are brought down. The temple's burned. It's total destruction. It's total judgment. And importantly, if you noticed, it was no accident. God did it. Verse 17 is clear as day, twice. Therefore he, who's he? That's the Lord. That's the Lord God Jehovah. He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. God brought Nebuchadnezzar up. That's what it says. He, again that's God, gave them all into his hand. Verse 17, two ends of it. It's very clear. God is not the author of evil. He never has been and he never will be. But he is the author of just judgment. And look what's happened to his special people. Just the same has happened to Adam. The land has expelled him the land has expelled them chronicles of a favored nation now we're going to talk about chronicles of a king in God's hand let's read on in our chapter verse 22 let's pick it up again now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia 
that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now there's a change of empire. Now between verse 21 and 22, there's a whole lot that's not covered that happens in in history. Uh, Judah falls to, to Babylon in 586 BC, as we talked about. But such is the volatility of the ancient world, a world where plenty of people, it seems, do want to rule the world. 47 years later, there's a new empire in town. King Debuchadnezzar of Babylon has died. His son has succeeded him. His name is Amel Marduk. He's got another name as well. He tries to reverse much of of the successful policies of his father, but by reversing these, he makes a mistake. It proves not to be a good move. He ends up murdered by his own brother-in-law, Belshazzar is the new king. Uh, You'll know him because he's mentioned in Daniel. And of course, when a country is weakened by such infighting and instability, history teaches us that it's vulnerable to take over. And so it is here. And Daniel, of course, is there on the night this happens. Daniel chapter 5, it's the writing on the wall incident, very famous. And on that very night, 539 BC, the Persian king captures the Babylonian empire. And there's not very much, there's hardly any significant resistance. It's a bit like the Taliban the other week in Afghanistan. Not much resistance. But this guy is much better than the Taliban. Cyrus, king of Persia. And when he takes over Babylon, he's taking over a Babylon that's already taken over Assyria. So he's effectively taking over both parts of Israel because one was captured by Assyria, the other part, the south was captured by Babylon, and so when he captures Babylon, he's capturing the whole lot, and a whole lot of other land besides. And Persia is the new superpower, the most powerful nation on earth. Change of empire. Secondly, a change of policy. Verse 22 tells us that Cyrus, king of Persia, well, he he does something different. Uh, The people he says, are going to be allowed to return from exile. They're going to be allowed to return with this sort of mission to, to build, a mission to rebuild the temple, a mission that's going to be with his blessing, it appears, with the blessing of the top man, King Cyrus. And this, this, this should be a shock for us. You should be shocked by this. Why? Because he's a pagan king. Because he's, he's not Jewish. He's, he's a pagan. He's from... He's from Persia. He runs this empire. He's, he's, he's got this massive empire where all sorts of stuff goes on, you know. But it shouldn't shock us as well at the same time because God said it would happen. Because it's been prophesied earlier in Scripture in terms of the chronology of it. You know, we're told that this happens that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Jeremiah had warned of the coming destruction. He's got a very difficult message to bring to to the people when he prophesies, when he teaches them. And and some of them don't want to hear it. But he also has a very positive message coming after that, a return. Jeremiah 29, verse 10 to 11. You'll know this verse. 
For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. It's one of those verses that people, well, they, they kind of take it to mean something nice to them when it's actually meant to, 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 to Judah as an encouragement as they're about to be massacred, which is not really what we think of, is it? But that, that's what that verse is about. Jeremiah isn't just Israel-focused either. He's got a message for the nations. He's got specific uh, prophecies for nations, uh, big players on the world scene in chapter 51, verse 11. Sharpen the arrows, he writes, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Now listen carefully to what that just said because Jeremiah is prophesying that the Medes, the Persians, are going to come and take over the Babylonians. And, 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 and it's going to happen because God has, has taken vengeance for his temple. But, but hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. You just told me that, that God sent the Babylonians to Israel to, to judge them, to destroy the temple because of their, their misbehavior, their, far worse, their sinfulness. They're, 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 they're falling away from God. Their disobedience. So how can you now tell me that God's now going to judge the same Babylonians for doing the very thing he sent them to do? Well, such, such, uh, brothers and sisters, is the, the workings of our God. Who can fathom how he can use such a complicated situation to bring about his purposes? He's, he, he's running a complicated world, and he's a complicated God, and he's able to do that. To at the same time as use one thing for another, to then judge the same empire by another empire for doing the very thing he sent them to do. All without God authoring any evil. Amazing, isn't it? It's a change of empire, it's a change of policy, and now we have a change from the top. A change that God has brought. Because these changes are not given, are not spoken of as being purely Cyrus in our Bible, are they? These changes are not at the behest even of, of Cyrus. The passage makes it very clear that we read that the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. You see that? The Lord moved the heart. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, we read. He moves the heart of King Cyrus to give this edict uh, it was not the king's own initiative. Now, this has happened before. Uh, in Daniel 5, Nebuchadnezzar's downfall happens when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was then brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He's humbled and he was incredibly humbled back in chapter 5 of Daniel. But we're told there that God hardened him. Think about the passages in, in Exodus when Pharaoh is, is, is well, should I let the people go? Should I not let the people go at the time of the plagues? And we're told that God hardened his heart. We are. Several times. At the time of the Exodus. And here, at the time of a new Exodus, if you think about it, we've got these slaves in Babylon. They're going to be promised, come back to the promised land. It's like a new Exodus. God does something new. God does something old in the same way. He acts in the heart of the king. This time, not hardening, but softening. Do you notice it? This time, it's, this time it's a positive action for God's people. 
It's going to happen again a few chapters' time when Zerubbabel is stirred up to build God's house along with the people. It's mentioned in Haggai chapter 1, verse 14 like that. God stirred the heart of the people. But what we have here, well, it's summarized in Proverbs 21, verse 1, very plainly. Listen to this. A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. Here, King Cyrus's heart is like a stream of water in the Lord's hand. And Cyrus opens his mouth in verse 23 and he says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. That's like a scene setter for the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's like a statement that sets the scene for our series. But the statement actually tells us quite a lot because he knows quite a lot, this pagan king of Persia called Cyrus, doesn't he? Notice that he he knows the name of the Lord. He knows the name of God. He he calls him Yahweh, four letters, four capital letters. That's that's Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. Is 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 he a believer? Good question. It's certainly possible. His actions do match with his statement, his theology, you can certainly say that. He, he knows where God lives in heaven. He knows who is, who is sovereign. That's important. He doesn't say, you know what, I built this empire. It's all on me. No, he says that God has given him all the kingdoms of the earth. God's given them to him. Now, he doesn't know that there are more kingdoms. There, there are more land. There's more land. I mean, he, he's no idea that there's China and Australia and America and a bit more of Africa, all the kingdoms of the earth. But he clearly, he clearly recognizes, doesn't he, that God's at work. God's at work. He names his source in all of this. It's God. He knows that God has, has his own people. That becomes clear as well, doesn't it? He knows that they are here in Babylon and and that they ought to be somewhere else, that they ought to be worshipping in the place where they're supposed to be worshipping, which is in in Jerusalem. He knows that there's a temple that needs to be rebuilt, this pagan king. He knows it's important that it is rebuilt. He he knows that, 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 that there's going to be no blessing for the people unless there is a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. He knows a lot for a pagan king. He cares a lot. For a pagan king. Some uh, historians will say that this is simply a, a change of tact, a change of tactic, uh, because for, for, for Nebuchadnezzar, his idea was the best way to run a big empire is to take all the good out of the land that you capture, all the good people out of the land you capture, bring them all as slaves to Babylon and let that sort of lie in waste over there and, and, and we'll not worry about it. Whereas for For Cyrus, his idea was that the best way to to rule an empire from a distance was to actually send the people back home uh, to be a worshipping community there, and and that was better. Different tactic. How do you you rule an empire? How do you rule the world? But that is not enough to account. It's not just a a change of tactic, because that's not enough to account for for this desire that we can clearly hear in his words to to see the temple of God rebuilt. Uh, That does not account for serious worship language. That's what I would call that, serious worship language. Obvious revelation as well. I mean, how does he know this stuff? 
Clearly, God's revealed it to him. Some um, debate, there exists some debate about how godly Cyrus really was. Some seem to think he was a bit of a syncretist. That's someone who just sort of adds a bit on of this religion and a bit on of that religion here and there, joins them all together. I'm not so sure. In any case, the historical change of tactic how to run an empire does not account for the whole story because it doesn't account for this prophecy in Jeremiah for a return to the land. It doesn't account for Cyrus himself naming God the way he does and calling him his, the one who's backed him and given him this empire. It doesn't account for the clear initiator of the idea being God that we read in the passage. No, there's certainly a behind-the-scenes going on here, isn't there? There's a, there's a curtain that if you can see behind, and the Bible enables us to see behind the curtain, that God, the Lord God, Jehovah, is pulling the strings. He's moving it around. He's making, he's, he's making it work. And in a personal way, Cyrus reveals this to us as we read God's word. Makes us aware of the behind the scenes. Did he hear from a prophet? Did God give him a vision? Both possible, both have happened around this time. I don't know. But one way or the other, God reveals himself to Cyrus. He knows things that he couldn't have known otherwise. But what we do know is that God is at work. And you know what? That's an encouragement to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in any age. God is at work who reads his word and who knows that he's in control of the world's chessboard, if you like. That should be an encouragement to you today, brothers and sisters. That should be an encouragement to you. Are you worried about recent political developments, protocols and border pools and costs of living this winter? Are you worried about that? Ever worry about what's going on in the world at large and you see it on your television screens in Afghanistan and Burma and, and China and think that it's out of control? Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. That thought, that thought would be a good one to have. That you felt that it was out of control. That you felt like you were bobbing around in the sea. And it, it, because if it turned you towards God, if it was a, a fear that, that, that led you to, to fear him, as we spoke about the other night, I know of a woman who thought like that along those very lines. There's, there's crazy things happening in the world, she says. I just don't know what's going on anymore. And you know what? I had to go back to church. It's a great thing to, to, to do, isn't it? All the crazy stuff has led her to seek out a church. Because you know who rules the world? It's not the G8. It's not Jew or Vladimir or Boris. It's their boss. That's the way the Bible speaks about it. They're servants of him. It's God. This world is God's stage. He is in charge. He moves the chess pieces. He will have his way. You can count on it. They may think it's them. Cyrus didn't think it was him. Yeah. It's much more common for someone godless to think it was them. They may think it was them, but it's God acting behind the scenes as only sovereign gods can he is the only superpower. All the other powers are water pistols up against a nuclear weapon compared to him. This is shown in a very powerful way 
in Acts chapter 4. You remember Acts chapter 4? Peter's standing at the, at the Sanhedrin, the Jewish law court. They, they've had enough of them preaching. Peter says this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. You hear that language? The first part of that verse tells us that Herod and and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people and the Romans were sinning. They were sinning when they collectively stood against Jesus, when they collectively rejected and falsely accused and beat up and mocked and crucified Jesus. They were sinning. The second part tells us that through it all, God had been sovereign in running things and carrying out his plans. The two things were going on at the same time. Now, it takes power, real power, to run the world. You have to be very powerful to work through people, don't you? But you have to be even more powerful to work through people who think they are working against you. Isn't that right? That's serious power. God has the ability to move the streams of water in the king's heart so that life gets worse, for his people, so that life gets better for his people. He can do both of those things. He can do both of them at the same time. He can do whatever he wants. He's the sovereign Lord. He's got the power. This God that we love and trust, this God that that, that his word presents to to, to us today, you, you are not a kite in the wind. Do you know that? You're a special child of the real king. That's what you are. That's who you are. You're not subject to random acts in a random world. You're cared for. You're loved. You're protected. All that comes to you that is difficult is part of his plan and workings, just like it was for Jesus. And his chronicles, his plans have been written of and spoken of, but but in all their form, they have not yet all come to be because he's promised more. He's promised in the New Testament, Exodus, that more nations than one, that people from every tribe and language and nation will come to him, to the the land that he's promised them. God will bring the hammer down. He will judge sin. He will rescue those who who know and love Jesus. And, And no human, no government, no demon will stop him. And his promise through all of that as it's worked out is that he is with his people. That's the blessing of pagan-turned-confessing King Cyrus. Look at verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. You see that? It's the promise of another bookend in the Bible, Matthew's gospel, and behold, I am with you, Jesus says, to the end of the age. He stands with them. He prays for his people. He sends his spirit in the wonderful New Testament, New Covenant promise fulfilled. He's not just a watching on God. He's a powerful acting God who is with us. We have that combination, don't we, of a sovereign God and a God who is with us. And and that's a great combination. That's a great combination. He's the God of the nations. 
He does as he pleases. And we come to pray to him now. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn to you because there is no higher authority. We turn to you because there is none other. We turn to Christ because where else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. And we place our hope and our trust in you, the sovereign one, the one who has the king's heart like a stream of water in your hand, who stirs us, who can work in wonderful ways as you work things out for your glory as this world hurtles on. It's not out of control. You are our sovereign Lord. Bless us with this thought as we seek to live in light of it in our Savior's name. Amen. Before we come to the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing a King of the Ages, Almighty at God together.